The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Elizabeth Heaton, the regular host. Amazingly enough, the summer is over. It's September 1st. Most of our students are back in school or will be next week, as Labor Day is just around the corner. If you aren't starting school until next week, and please enjoy your last few days of freedom, and I hope you have a wonderful long weekend. Now on to today. Our During our second segment, I'll be talking with Lauren Randall, former admission officer at Georgetown University and college counselor, former college counselor at the Canadian School of Hong Kong, about the International Baccalaureate program offered in so many U.S. high schools. We all know about advanced placement classes, so what is the IB program and what what advantages does it offer over APs? For, for our third segment, I'll be talking with Shannon Vasconcelos, former senior aide officer at Boston University and Tufts and college coach veteran. She'll be telling us about paying for college when you come from a divorced family. But first, we'll have our schools in session, a continuation of our summer session, Schools Out. Seniors, are you wondering what you can do now to improve your chances of getting into your REACH schools? You only have a few weeks left, so what will give you the biggest bang for your buck? Also, in your first week back in school, what are those crucial to-dos that you need to take care of, those organizational tasks that are easy to forget but very important? My colleagues and I will be covering as much of that as possible, so grab your pens and be ready to take notes. My guests, members of the Schools In team here at College Coach will be Karen Spencer, former admission officer at Georgetown and Franklin and Marshall, as well as Beth Feinberg-Keaton, Keenan, excuse me, former financial aid officer at North, Northeastern University. Both are multi-year veterans here at College Coach. Welcome, Karen and Beth. Thanks, Allie. Thanks, Allie. Hi. So this is a big time for organization and deciding what the last things are that you can do to improve your application. So, I mean, I think, Karen, I'm going to address these questions first to you. What, you know, what, can a, what should a student be thinking about right now in their first week back to school or their first week back is going to be in a couple of days? You know, what should they be thinking about at this moment? So what I think there are two real things I want a student to really focus on is one is having a plan, right? You're going to get started and then it's going to be a whirlwind, right? You're going to have tests, you're going to have papers, you're going to have homework you know, games or concerts or art programs or, you know, whatever, everything's going to go back into full force real quick. So have a plan for how you're going to get through the next two or three months, depending on when, you know, your applications are due to get it done, right? And ideally, what I think you should start with is 
really kind of a flow chart. Here is, and it can be super simple. It does not have to be, you know, Google Docs with rotating charts. If that's your thing, great. Be that, have that be your thing. But, you know, I'm fine with a simple Excel. You know, I'm applying to these seven schools. Here is their due date based on the way I'm applying. I'm applying, you know, early action or regular decision or early decision, whatever. Here's how many essays each one has to get, you know, out the door. Do they take the common app? And what do I have left to do with this? Right? And so look at it. It's a visual reminder of what you have left on your plate to do. And then kind of prioritize, okay? So what's due first, right? Let's talk about what's due first and kind of work our way backwards. Um, one of the things I really love to do with students is just give them an essay schedule because let's be honest, at this point, that's one of the largest things left in an application. You know, the applications themselves aren't rocket science. You know, my name is, my address is. Uh, but writing the essays is really for most students what's going to take the, amount of, the most amount of time. So kind of work back. Like if, you know, you've got four essays due for early action on November 1st, how are you going to get those done? And by the way, that seems like a long way away. That's two months away. That's it. You've got like eight and a half weeks <laughs> until these are due. Right. Right? right. And so when you think about it that way, work your way backwards. And when do I need to start writing these for these to be done? Um, see what essays kind of overlap. So I think really one is simply having a plan. And the second thing, and, and I say this all the time to parents and students, is be very clear about what is still in your control and what is not. I find a lot of um, Monday morning quarterbacking or whatever the case may be going on as they hit senior year. You know, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do about that C? I got an AP econ sophomore year. Well, you're not doing anything about it. You still have it. It's on your transcript. It is what it is. Like, let's talk about what you still have in con- your control, which is, frankly, as a senior, not a ton. So make sure you're focusing on the right thing. Right, right. Exactly. And that really is the issue. What is in your control right now? What can you impact right now? So being organized is one of them. And I think in, in uh, the School's Out segments, we've been talking about that all summer. So students, if you've been ignoring us, now's really the time to make yourself that plan, make yourself that spreadsheet and figure out when you need to get everything done. Um, but let's talk about a couple other things. I mean, I am getting a lot of phone calls now where people say, well, what can, what can I do now? Right. And really, there isn't much, but there are a few things like one is uh, interviews. I mean, what do you think? How much of an impact do interviews have? And, and what do you think students can do there? I think so. one is to know which of your schools allows for interviews. Right. Interview policies are all over the map. There are schools that absolutely will not do that, period. There are some that are going to require them. Like where I worked at Georgetown, we required one of every applicant. Um, there are places like Franklin and Marshall where I worked, where we, um, we were open to them. You could come on campus and have them, but they were not required. So the policies differ. So the one is to know what is the policy of the schools you're applying to. So you don't get super psyched to go interview only to find out they don't do them. Um, and then really is to be prepared to talk about yourself. I always kind of crack up when I have a student come in my office, especially after their first interview, and I always say, how did it go? And, you know, usually, they, first of all, the good news is they almost always say, oh, that was easier than I thought it was going to be, which is always, you know, that you want to hear, right, which I think is true. Um, but the other thing is, like, God, I really have to talk about myself a lot, which I always crack me up to. I was like, it's an interview. Like, what, did, <laughs> what exactly did you think was going to happen here? Um, so I always say, like, just be prepared to talk about yourself and know why you're there, right? Don't ask an admissions officer or an alum or, you know, whoever you're interviewing with a question that, frankly, you should already know the answer to, right? If you're a senior and you're interviewing, you shouldn't be like, so how many kids go to school here? Like, you should know that, Right. What you're trying to get is at some sense of what things you don't know that maybe only somebody who works on campus would really have a good sense for. Um, and again, be prepared to talk about yourself. You know, be prepared to think about 
what your favorite and least favorite courses were and what you've been involved with and why you've chosen those things. And, you know, in my experience, honest to God, 95% of students do fine in their interview or well enough that it is not going to hurt them. Um, right. You know, I'd say 5% of students who really bomb an interview are either compulsively shy, um, and I mean, that's just kind of shy, like compulsively shy, um, or really don't want to be there, right? Mom made me apply here. I have no desire to go to, you know, fill in the blank school. Um, outside of those two categories, most kids do just fine. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Gen- even a little bit nervous is fine if you're still able to talk. It's only when you're completely nonverbal that you're really going to, that it might be an actual issue. And that actually leads in really well to last week's homework. So I just wanted to reiterate that for our guests. Um, the guest host, Ian, assigned looking up the school policies on interviewing on each college's website. So that's great right there. You emphasize that as well. And then also remember to follow Zaragoza Guerra's homework, which is to write down five questions for you to ask in an interview. And Karen, as you said, it should not be, what's the size of the school? What are your majors? You should be able to look that up. It should be more in-depth questions about things that you really care about. Please don't ask if they have a study abroad program. Every school has a study abroad program. So Exactly. Uh, and don't ask a question that can't the person wouldn't know the answer to, or is kind of a loaded question, if I want to add on to that, you know. You know, like people would always say, Well, how's your biology program? Well, you remember, I have to remember, I'm an admissions officer. I'm not a bio major, right? So to some degree, I can't totally talk about that. And there's probably 80 majors, right? So I, I can't be an expert at all of those kind of things. That's the kind of thing you want to say, you know, what exactly is it you're getting at? And what, what does good mean to you, right? That was one of the questions I always hated when people would ask me as an admissions officer because I was like, well, I wasn't a bio major here, so I can't give you in-depth knowledge of every major we have. So also think about, can this person really answer the question I'm asking them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe that kind of question is it's better actually to ask it on the tour because right. maybe the student isn't a bio major, but maybe one of their friends is. Or if not, then they can say, you know what, I can put you in touch with a student where that's their major. So, right. So or kind of the bio department. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. So what are some other things they can do? I mean, one of the things that I think students can impact um, most quickly, I mean, not all students can do that, do this, but sort of the biggest bang for your buck, it might be test scores, might be SAT or ACT scores. Has, have you seen that with your students? I have. I think, you know, I think it's important to be judicious and also be somewhat realistic, right? So if you've already taken it three times, you're probably done. I don't, I never see like the fourth time. And if you've taken it two times, maybe, maybe not, right? Um, it never hurts, especially if, your list, your, you know, your dream school, you're right on the precipice of being really in the ballpark, but, you know, one or two more points on an ACT or another, you know, 50 to 100 on an SAT would make you look just that much better. Um, that's when you might want to think about taking the test again and, and prepping for it, right? I mean, you, you know, I remember Ken Herrera used to say to us, you know, um, if you want a significantly different score between tests, you should probably do something significantly different. Um, <laughs> and so I, I always give that advice to students. You know, yeah, sometimes people take a test again and it's just a different test and a different day and they do better. And that does happen. Um, but if you need, you know, a significant improvement, you might think about how you prep for that test in a different way this time um, or really focus on the area you need strengthen, right? If you're not going to out of the park in the verbal section, then spend your time on the math because that's really where your, you know, your problem lies, right? Be very kind of smart about how you use your time and taking a test again. Right, right. Absolutely. What can you get done? What's realistic? 
and generally, I mean, believe it or not, I've actually seen students who focused on the area that they were strongest in because they thought, well, maybe I can get to an 800 in that one. Meantime, their math is down at 500. You know, it's, you really need right, to be exactly. spending your time on your weaker activity. So Focus now, on the wrong thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, another thing, and I know we're jumping around here, but we're really talking about stuff that people can do quickly. Um, this is a little harder, but visiting colleges. I mean, there. I want to be clear that not all colleges care if you visit. Harvard doesn't care if you visit. Stanford doesn't care if you visit. And if you visit five times, they're going to think you're a stalker. They're not going to be impressed with how interested you are. Exactly. But, like, please don't do that. But a lot of other colleges that are selective, but not at the top tier of selectivity, really care whether or not you visited. So that is something that I want to emphasize because I'm always surprised by people who don't know that visiting is something that a lot of private colleges are looking at these days. It's my biggest harping point with parents and students, hands down, is the importance of the college visit. I, like, I cannot emphasize this enough. I always say, and I'm sure I've probably said on this radio program before, to be honest, but you know, one is there's no better way of understanding whether this college fits you if you haven't been on campus, right? It's like going on a date, right? Everybody can look great on paper. I want to go on a date, right? I want to see if there's any chemistry here, right? You need to be on campus for that to happen. It's also helpful if you've got to write a why this college essay. Why do you want to go to GW? Why do you want to go to Franklin and Marshall? Why do you want to go wherever, right? If you've ever been on campus, it's a really difficult essay question to answer well. It's a hard question to answer well sometimes if you've been on campus, but even if you haven't, near impossible. And then to your point, when I worked at Franklin and Marshall, perfect example of a school that does what we call tracked interest, uh, tracked interest, we would have a list of every contact a student had ever had with our institution when their application came to us. And I can still tell you to this day, a student who had been on campus, if I admitted them, they had a 50% chance of enrolling. If they had never done anything but turn in an application, they had a 7% chance of enrolling. And I would mm-hmm. say, if you don't think that the deans of admission and the vice presidents of enrollment management pay attention to that kind of thing, you're kidding yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So we would often wait list that kid who'd only ever turned in an application because we thought they were frankly a goat, right? We were probably never going to see this kid again. Whereas that kid who was perhaps on the bubble between a wait list and an admit, we used to have shown some real demonstrated interest, might have helped them get them into, you know, the admit pile. Um, you know, be, let me be clear, if you're not in the ballpark, again, no amount of visiting is going to help you, that's, you're done. So that, don't think, like, I'm going to visit, and all of a sudden that's going to trump me being 300 points in the SAT below your average. Like, that is not going to help you. Um, but if you're really on the fence, and you're really kind of debating between wait list and admit, and you seem like you're really likely to attend, that can only help you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I think um, I want to move things over to Beth pretty soon to, to talk about financial aid. But I guess the last thing I would emphasize is 12th grade classes still matter, right? We still Amen. want students to take a tough course load. And I think people don't think that. They think, well, they're never going to see them, but we are going to see them. And, and even if, you know, I think I hear that the most from a kid who applying early decision or maybe early action to a lot of schools, and they'll say, well, they're never going to have those when they're making the decision the first time. And I'll say, maybe not. Maybe. I said, first of all, if you get deferred, then they're going to see them, right? So if you don't get in early action and you get deferred to regular decision, they're going to see first semester grades. And even, let's say, you get into your first choice early decision, which is great, um, and you're going there, every school is going to require a final transcript for you to be on campus. So let's say you get into your early decision school, you enroll, 
you send in your enrollment deposit, they're going to still say, you're not, this is not final until we see your final transcript. And if you decided to take a major vacation senior year, uh, we're going to notice that too. And, you know, at both schools I worked at, um, we would sometimes start kids on academic probation because they decided to take a vacation um, senior year. And so that's not something you want to do. A, a little senioritis is okay, especially second semester, a little first semester, you want to still be guns blazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, all right. And let's, so let's switch over to Beth. Beth, what are some of the things that students should be doing now to ensure that, or to help their chances of getting either merit-based or financial need-based aid? So in terms of, you know, merit-based financial assistance, you know, one of the things that they should be doing is going to the college websites to figure out, first and foremost, do they offer merit-based scholarships? You know, look to see what the requirements are if they do offer merit-based scholarships. Some schools are very straightforward with that information, and they'll list what's, what GPA, what standardized test score, ACT, SAT score required to be offered uh, different merit-based scholarships. If it's, not as, if it's uh, not as transparent and you can't find that information, you know, give a call, send an email to the admissions office to find out you know, what are the profile of the student look like who was offered this scholarship or these scholarships in the past? A lot of them talk about academic rigor. They talk about leadership. They talk about community uh, involvement. And again, like Karen, you know, Karen mentioned. I mean, if you're if you if you haven't necessarily done the st- steps to get the scholarship now, it's not likely that you can be able to change anything to be able to be a better candidate necessarily for those scholarships. So if you are looking at the criteria and you aren't necessarily going to qualify for those scholarships at, at some of your top schools, then make sure that you're looking at other schools maybe that you're a better fit for, where you may be a better candidate for scholarships that they have to offer. And I had a family the other day with that situation that they had three very, very selective schools, and they're not willing to pay full sticker price, and none of these schools offer merit-based, none of them offer merit-based scholarships. And the conversation was the student really needs to expand their list and think about schools where they may get scholarships and then you're not going to have to pay a $65,000 sticker price that the student was looking at at some of these uh, private institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, to answer your question about need-based financial aid, uh, colleges have net price calculators. So while there's nothing that a family necessarily can do to change their financial picture, if a family wants to get a better idea if they're going to qualify for need-based financial assistance, colleges all have net price calculators on their websites, so students and families should go and run those net price calculators. If they want to get an idea of what type of questions are asked on the FAFSA, they can go to fafsa.gov, so that's the FAFSA website. They can pull up a PDF of last year's FAFSA, the FAFSA that uh, students are filling out for this current academic year, or filled out for this current academic year, and look at the questions that were asked of families. The one nice thing is when families are filing the FAFSA, a lot of the questions they'll notice are they're asking for last year or 2015 taxes. Well, guess what? You're going to be using the same taxes to file your FAFSA for this, you know, for the 17-18 school year too. So you'll be able to not necessarily have to, to get, you're not going to have to guess, but you'll be able to, you know, you have completed taxes already to fill out that information. Okay. All right. So we have to wrap this up now. But Beth, what would what kind of homework would you give the students in for uh, who are looking for extra financial help in attending college? 
So a couple of different things. The first thing that I would have them do is, you know, definitely pull a copy of the FAFSA from last year just to see what type of questions are being asked so they can make sure that they have all that information in order because the FAFSA is going to be available on October 1st. Uh, Be on the lookout for our blog that we're going to have about the early FAFSA on September 6th. And stay tuned for our radio show, radio show, which is going to be dedicated to the FAFSA primarily on September, 20, on September 29th. So we have a couple of things that you can look out for that we can also help you guide you with uh, FAFSA information. Okay, great. Thanks so much. And so now I'm going to give my homework. And that's that if you haven't done, that, done this yet, I really want you to go to the Common Application website, Common App. That's app, commonapp.org, and set up your account and go ahead and add your colleges to the My Colleges list on the Common Application website and then fill out as much of that as you can. We're going to be covering the Common Application in detail on our October 6th show, but I want you to fill out as much as you can and fill out the My Colleges part because then you can look up and see how many essays you're going to have to complete if you are applying to colleges that are on the Common App. Um, Karen, how, what about you? What, what homework uh, are you recommending? My other job would be to um, fill out all the other ones that are not the common app. I think um, if, you're, if you're filling out one application, it makes sense to fill out every single one you have to do because they all ask for similar information, right? Again, these aren't rocket science. But if you can't remember what your mother's job title is, and she just told you, why not fill them out on all of the forms, right? Or your seed code for your high school, or you just listed all of your activities in the Common App, go put them on every other application you have as well that doesn't take the Common App. Get them all done all at once, and then you know all you've got to input then is the essay. Okay. All right, great. Listen, thanks so much, Karen and Beth. Um, We're going to take a short break, everyone, but when we get back, we'll be speaking with Lauren Randall about the International Baccalaureate System available in some U.S. high schools. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our, our break, now we'll be speaking with Lauren Randall, former college counselor at the Canadian International School of Hong Kong and International Baccalaureate School. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm great, Sally. How are you? Great. I'm doing really well. Thank you. So let's start with, I think a lot of our listeners will probably have never heard of the the International Baccalaureate Program. I know that I hadn't heard of it actually until I started working in college admissions myself. So, So what is it? How would you describe it? Sure. So the International Baccalaureate, and from here on out, I'm calling it the IB, because that's just easier, and that's, that's what everybody calls it. The mm-hmm. IB is a rigorous high school program. It offers college-level courses and maybe even the opportunity to earn college credit. Um, it was developed to be an internationally recognized diploma. So, you know, a lot of different countries out there have their own system, but this was developed to be internationally recognized. So I would say it's still not as common as AP courses in the U.S., but it's, it's definitely growing in popularity here. And more and more high schools, U.S. high schools, are offering the program. Um, I looked up on, on, the, on the IB's website that there are currently around 900 high schools in the U.S. offering the IB. Okay, great. So it, is, it has become pretty popular. What, um, how is the program structured? I mean, we know that it's rigorous, but how is it structured? You know, what are some of the interesting aspects of the curriculum? Sure. To earn the full IB diploma, you have to take a certain amount of courses in a range of subjects and receive certain scores on the corresponding exams. So it's not like the AP where you can just pick and choose and maybe you take one, maybe you take 12 AP courses. It's not structured that way. This is meant to be to take certain courses in a, in a range of subjects. So it is possible to take a, a few IB courses without earning the full diploma, but for purposes today, you know, I think the IB was developed to be a set program of courses, and I'd recommend that students aim to take on the full diploma program and not just a course here and there, if possible, and if they're up for the challenge. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I can tell you, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I can tell you that at University of Chicago, we loved the full diploma program. The individual courses we sort of viewed similarly to the AP program. Exactly, exactly. But there is something that does stand out about having that full diploma because it is, that's the way the program was structured and set out to be. Um, Mm -hmm. So students, they'll, they'll take a a set of courses, and again, those corresponding exams at the end of a, of a two-year program, I think that's a big difference. This is, this is set up to be for, to complete during junior and senior year of high school. And there are other requirements, too. There is a community service, an extracurricular um, activity requirement. Um, there is also an extended essay, which is a long college-style research paper, as well as a philosophy-based theory of knowledge course. So, you know, it's not just about the, these courses that you have to take. There are a lot of other requirements as well, which I think is one more reason why that full diploma um, really does kind of set some students apart. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you think the advantages are in terms of college admission? I mean, you and I both agree that the full diploma 
is impressive. And I think it really is impressive at the highest level. I mean, a student getting a full diploma in IB, I viewed as being an even stronger student than a student taking, say, five AP courses, um, you know, in their junior, senior year. Absolutely. I think there's definitely the advantage um, in college admissions that if your high school offers the full IB diploma and you're enrolled in that program, the college is immediately, and, and doing well in the program, the college is immediately aware that you're taking a rigorous curriculum and they can trust that you are college material. You're ready. I also think one more big advantage, not just for college admissions, but really we're talking long-term here. We're talking about once you get into college. And I think one advantage to the IB program is that it really emphasizes writing and developing critical thinking skills. It's not just about the exams themselves, which you know I think the AP plays towards a bit more. They're really prepping you content-based for an exam. IB is more about writing and developing critical thinking skills. Um, and that's probably because it's a, a two-year-long program. So students are, are looking at things closely, but also over time. And, and maybe the impact that subject is, is making in other areas of the world or in other subject matters, it's, it's maybe more holistic, I would say. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it, it's almost more in line with where colleges are moving students to see that overlap and the interconnectedness between disciplines as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real advantage. Absolutely. And we know one thing that caught my attention when I first heard about it was the the theory of knowledge class, which you mentioned. I mean, it seemed to be, yeah, very much about philosophy and getting students to sort of think about how we learn, why we learn. Um, I I don't know if I'm getting that right, because I never got to take the class, but it seemed like a class I would have wanted to take. I absolutely, I wish that I had taken it in high school or just, or even now, because it's not just a philosophy-based course, but it is really training students to tackle tough questions, but also think on their feet. There is a, a component to it where you're given oral exams and you are going to talk through problems and how well do you respond? I can't think of better preparation for college than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we loved it at Reed, um, and we loved it at the University of Chicago, two institutions that I work at. So, that I worked at. So, yeah, absolutely. But so, so let's talk about disadvantages um, to the IB program. I mean, obviously, if you're ready for it, because um, that's a whole lot of work. Um, mm-hmm. It's an incredible program, and what a great preparation for college. Um, but what about disadvantages? I think there could be some disadvantages. One could be that it is a program you're committing to for two years. So you're going to make certain course selections at the end of sophomore year that you more or less got to stick to. So maybe, you know, I can say some examples. So when I was working um, at the IB school in Hong Kong, I would have students pick classes And one thing I didn't mention, there's higher level and standard level courses. So you do, while it's a set structure of courses, you do get to specialize or tailor your your curriculum somewhat to your interests. But let's say you chose some higher level courses and then all of a sudden, two years later, you say, well, I really want to be an engineer and I didn't pick physics or I didn't or I didn't take math at the higher level that could hold you back in certain cases. So I think part of it might be foresight that could be a disadvantage, not certainly not for every student. 
Um, and I also think that there's not as much just flexibility to take tons and tons of different courses, which is probably easier to do with APs if your high school ha- offers a lot of AP courses. So if you're that type of student who just wants to take every course and every subject under the sun and, and move on, um, then the IB might be too rigid and it's structured for you. Mm-hmm. So like- one more thing, well, one more, I th- could be a disadvantage. I would say the other thing is that students can take an AP exam without being enrolled in a class. So if you're a type of student who likes to self-study, um, maybe it's a niche subject like art history or a language that you want to study on your own, you could take an AP exam. You can't do that with IB. You have to be in an IB, IB class in order to take an IB exam. So I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a disadvantage or not, but it is a difference. It is, well, that, that maybe that actually points to, uh, to go being in the IB program because you could always take the AP exam if you wanted to. Um, so wait, wait, wait a second, a disadvantage and do an advantage, Sally. I love it. That's great. <laughs> You're right. I didn't think of it that way. I try, I try to be positive when I think about all these things. So, um, all right. So let's say, I don't think many students are in this position, but let's say that a school offers IB, AP and honors courses. So which, you know, what should a student choose? That's a great question because I certainly would not want any, any family or student or parent listening to this and say, oh my gosh, my school doesn't offer IB my kid needs to switch schools. First of all, that's not the case, okay? I can't stress enough that colleges don't automatically consider AP or IB harder or more impressive on a transcript in and of itself. So don't feel like you need to switch schools or anything like that if if one program is emphasized over another. Colleges can't penalize students for taking the IB, for for not taking one or the other um, if the high school doesn't offer it, just like they can't penalize students for only taking a couple APs if that's all their high school offers. So I want to make that clear. So what's most important, especially to the more selective colleges, is that they want to see that you've taken the most challenging course load available at your high school. So that means really instead of worrying about AP versus IB, you should be worrying about, you should worry more about taking the most rigorous classes your high school offers. And I think that's an important distinction because let's say they offer both both AP and IB. I would say in and of itself, maybe one is not more impressive or rigorous, but taking a smattering between the two is probably not going to be as impressive as doing the full IB diploma or maxing out in a lot of AP classes across a range of subjects. So I think it's really more important to to understand the differences and decide which is the better fit for your student if the school, high school offers both. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that you said, you know, you really did answer this earlier um, when you said if you want to try a lot of different things, AP is going to offer more flexibility. If you want to mm-hmm. go really in depth, the International Baccalaureate might really offer that opportunity more. So yeah. do you think that's accurate? Yeah. Oh, I definitely think that's accurate for sure. Okay. And so let's think about how, I mean, we've talked about how in college admissions, you know, colleges want you to take the most rigorous course load that you're ready to handle. Um, But what about in terms of credit? I mean, I know, you know, when I went off to college, the fact that I had some AP credits were really helpful, especially if, you know, I had that class that it turned out I didn't like, I was able to drop it. There was, there were no problems with my graduating on time because I walked in with some credits. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what, what's, which program works better in terms of giving students a head start once they're at college? 
Great question. And I think, you know, again, if we're going back and the high school offers both, this could be a deciding factor on, on which one maybe is not going to give you the leg up in the admissions process, but one could cert- one over the other certainly could give you a leg up in terms of the credit that you're going to receive or the course placement. But the problem is there's not an easy answer to this. There, it requires a lot of research. So as your, as your students or as a student starts to consider what colleges they might be interested in, it is super important to, to dig into the specific policies of each college. I know that takes a lot of work, but it, it could be the difference of whether or not you get six credits or nine credits or even start as a sophomore even. I would say Canadian colleges are really in love with the IB diploma and many, many Canadian colleges, if you have the full IB diploma with certain scores, you can start as a sophomore. That's a huge advantage. In the U.S., I think that it it goes school by school, and maybe you can start to figure out if the college might prefer the AP based on how generous their policies are versus the IB, but some might be giving more credit hours. Um, For example, IB chemistry at the higher level, you could get six credits at some schools like Stanford versus three credits for an AP chemistry class. So some might give you more bang for your buck. But in general... You should assume that the, that the college is going to give credit for, for stronger scores on the higher level exams and not necessarily on the standard level exams. So that typically means um, a, a five or above on the IB score at, or a, three, a four or above on the AP. So there is some nuance to it, and there's certainly, you know, a lot of research. But I think that that could be a deciding factor for families as they're trying to decide which program might be better. Or mm-hmm. maybe decide then which college to go to. What are their policies? So now you've applied which colleges are going to honor your coursework more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just so people can understand this, you know, for the colleges that only give credit for higher level courses, although as you said, they might be quite generous. I think it's important to note that students take fewer high, higher level courses than they might take of APs, right? So you might That's get double right. the you might get double the credit, but you might only take three higher level classes. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. And I certainly have seen students take 10 AP courses and could get credit. So, you know, there is, that is something to consider, but also um, it's not just about the higher levels. Some, like in Canada and some U.S. colleges, they are also awarding just credit in general for passing the diploma with certain scores. So it's not just that the higher level might be specific um, testing you out of some core classes, but you might just get credit in general from having that full diploma. I would definitely say this is all laid out on the IBO.org. That is the official IB website, IBO.org. And if you type in university admission, there is a a link that takes you to recognition of the IB, and it doesn't just do the U.S. It, every country in the world, their policies, and they try to break it down by as many colleges exa- uh, within that country. It is amazing, the Excel list. So spend some time browsing through there, and you'll see the discrepancies, the differences, and the advantages between colleges. Wow, that is great. And I actually did not know about that website until I talked to you. So IBO.org, everyone. And I guess what I want to end this conversation with is um, 
you know, I'm one of the people who's guilty of this. A lot of us, because the AP program, the advanced placement program is more popular. When I go out on the road, I often talk to, I talk, I refer to AP classes, AP classes, and then I'll get this poor person raise their hand and go, I'm in IB, is that okay too? And then, you know, and then I have to sort of say, yes, it's okay, I promise. So I think it's good Absolutely. that we talked about the, yeah, yeah, because it's a great program too. And it's also really well regarded by the colleges. For sure. Okay. All right. Listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It was great to be on the show again. Okay, great. Well, we'll have you back again for sure. Thanks so much. Have a good one. You too. All right. So everyone, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, Shannon Vasconcelos, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, will be talking to us about paying for college when you come from a divorced family. So stick around. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Shannon Vasconcelos will be talking us through how coming from a divorced family impacts paying for college. Welcome, Shannon. Did I get your name right that time? You sure did, Sally. Thanks. <laughs> okay, thank you for being patient with me. All right, so let's, <laughs> so let's dig into this. This is something that is a big deal. I know that when I went to college, my parents were divorced, and so that was kind of a, an extra added stressor um, mm-hmm. in terms of getting those sure. forms done. So. So um, I guess let's start with the basics. If the parents are divorced, whose information is financial aid based on? Yeah, so at the vast majority of colleges, the financial aid is based on the financial information of the custodial parent. And that can be a confusing term because people say, you know, well, we have joint custody. Custodial as defined by the federal student aid programs. It has nothing to do with what your actual 
custody agreements say. Um, the custodial parent is defined as the parent who the student lives with the majority of the time. Whoever the student lives with more, that's considered the custodial parent. That is the parent who puts their financial information on the FAFSA form, the big um, financial aid application. Um, And one kind of further complication um, is when parents are remarried. If that's the case, if your custodial parent is remarried, the step-parent, your custodial parent's spouse, also goes on the FAFSA form. The financial aid is also based um, on their income and their assets, uh, and that's something that, that often surprises people, honestly makes people mad sometimes. <laughs> they think that you know, their step-parent should not be, you know, have any um, responsibility for paying for college. Um, that you know, may be the case in your house. <laughs> you may have decided that the step-parent is not paying for college at all, but the federal government has decided for federal financial aid purposes, they want to look at the whole custodial household, that, that parent, and if they're remarried, the step-parent as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's really important to know, for sure. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that does surprise people. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, so what if custody is 50-50? I mean, there are families that really do split it down the middle as best they can. So what, what yeah. about that situation? Yeah. So, again, sort of on the FAFSA, if you read the fine print about, you know, whose parent's information should I be reporting here, they say the custodial parent is the parent you live with the majority of the time. Then they go on to say if it is exactly equal, if you live with both parents, exactly the same amount of time, report the information of the parent who provides the majority of your support. So that's kind of the, the tiebreaker factor. If you really truly live with both parents exactly the same amount of time, who provides you more support? I would say it rarely has to go to that tiebreaker um, usually, even if you know there's joint custody, usually there is one parent who the student lives with a little bit more often. Um, and frankly, if you're um, kind of early on enough in the process, you know, if, if you're not applying for financial aid for this year, if this is still you know a couple years in the future for you, and you are in a divorce situation, and one parent makes a lot more money than the other one. Think about if can you arrange it so that the custodial parent is the parent who makes less money. That's what's going to get the student more financial aid. So, you know, if you tend to, if the student lives in both households, you know, about the same amount of time, try and have them live uh, a little bit more with the, the parent who makes less money, and that will benefit them in the financial aid process. Mm-hmm. And so when you say majority of support, does support mean financial sp- support specifically? Yes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. not talking about emotional support. Right, right, <laughs> they don't right. They yeah, about exactly. that on the path, so yeah, they're talking about financial support. Yeah, I figured, but I just thought I would clarify. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. not necessarily who's giving you your rides to your soccer games. It's who's right. paying for exactly. those things. Okay. Yeah, who's paying oh. the bills. But it, and again, it only they only care about that if you live exactly fifty fifty. If you live more with with one or the other. Um, they don't care who actually provides you with more money. Like you could live with your mom, but your dad. Um, maybe your mom doesn't work and your dad provides kind of all your support. Um, in that case, the custodial parent would still be your mom. It's still the person who li- you live with most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if a person's financial aid is based on their custodial parent's finances, are there any issues if the custodial parent wants to help pay for college? Yeah, so if the... Um, 
So the, in general, the colleges don't care who the money actually comes from to pay the bill. They're going to assess, um, they're going to determine financial aid eligibility based on the custodial parents' info. Uh, but after that, they don't really care where the money comes from. However, there, is, there can be a problem if the non-custodial parent is giving the student money or, um, or paying the tuition bill. That can actually decrease financial aid eligibility in future uh, years uh, because they do ask the student on the financial aid application this, this odd question. They say, did you receive any gifts or have any bills paid on your behalf in the past um, in this year of income that we're looking at, that is actually two years back. Um, did anybody give you any gifts? And they actually, they used to kind of leave it at that. They've now gone on to kind of explain in fine print, sort of put in parentheses, you know, hey, student, this means you're non-custodial parent, <laughs> to, to make it very clear to, to students that they should be reporting non-custodial parent contributions there. So if, say, your non-custodial dad, let's say, pays for um, freshman year of college, when you're applying for financial aid for your junior year of college, because they look two years back on the financial aid application, so that comes back to haunt you kind of two years in the future. On that junior year financial aid application, um, you have to report that your dad paid, let's say, $10,000 towards your tuition. They count that $10,000 as student income. Student income is hit very hard in, in the financial aid calculations. Um, so that's where it can become problematic in terms of costing you financial aid if your non-custodial parent um, actually helps to pay the tuition, which is a, obviously a good thing for them to do, but it can come back to haunt you in terms of the financial aid calculations. Um, the best way to kind of, if, if you're in a, a divorce situation and you're trying to figure out kind of who should pay for what, for financial aid purposes, it makes the most sense for the, if you're going to, you know, you say you want to split things 50-50, it would be make the most sense for the custodial parent to pay for the first two years of college and the non-custodial parent to pay for the last two years of college. Um, because those non-custodial contributions show up on a financial aid application two years in the, in the future, um, if, if the, that parent is just paying for junior and senior years of college, there are no more financial aid applications two years beyond that. So it truly never hurts you on a financial aid application, any contributions that non-custodial parent makes to the last two years. If it's in the first two years, it can um, take away financial aid eligibility in future years. So that's the timing of non-custodial payments is something that, that parents uh, who are divorced really want to think about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess that's an advantage to the prior, prior year as well. Is that Exactly right. Yeah, it used to be, you know, the non-custodial parent could only pay for the last year without it hurting you. Now with prior, prior year, they can actually pay for the last two years without it hurting you. Okay. All right. Great. Um, okay. So you said earlier that most, most, not all colleges, just require custodial parent information to apply for financial aid. So I'm guessing that there are some exceptions to this rule, and there are some colleges that require information about non-custodial parents as well. That's exactly right. So yeah, on the FAFSA form, which is a big major financial aid application, that's where they only ask about the custodial household. Um, there are, and, and that's what the vast majority of colleges use to apply for financial aid. 
Um, there are some almost entirely private colleges, however, that ask for this extra financial aid application called the CSS profile. Um, the main profile form itself also just asks about the custodial household, but most of the colleges that use the profile form ask for this supplement called the non-custodial parent profile. Um, and that, so that does ask for the non-custodial parents' finances as well. So those colleges will take a look at both households' financial information and base financial aid on that. Um, so, again, it's relatively few colleges in the grand scheme of things, um, but it is a lot of the kind of big-name selective private colleges that a lot of students want to apply to. The, the schools that I worked at, Boston University and Tufts University, both asked for the non-custodial profile. Uh, schools you worked at, Reed, uh, Chicago, they, they both asked for non-custodial profile. So in the grand scheme of things, there's something like 4,000 colleges in the U.S. 3,700 of them just use the FAFSA. Um, but the 300 that use the profile are a lot of the big-name private schools. So it's just something to be prepared for if you're looking at schools like that. Right. Big name and very expensive, I think. So. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right. So um, what if, I mean, you know, what if a student is applying to a college that asks for non-custodial parent information, but they can't get that information? Actually, I mean, that rings a bell. When I was a high school counselor, I had a student whose father had left, had, you know, literally disappeared when she was one year old. And we yeah. were giving her financial aid based on her mother's you know, relatively low income. So the college called me and I said, look, we give her aid. Her dad's not in the picture. He's, he's gone. He's not there. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what about that situation? Yeah. So every college that asks for that non-custodial profile will have a process by which you, you can request that that requirement be waived. Um, and it's good to talk to the financial aid office at the school and ask ex for exactly what they need for that requirement to be waived, but generally you have to write a letter to the aid office explaining what your situation is, why you cannot access your non-custodial parents' information. Um, in the situation you talked about where dad has been gone since they were one year years old, that's exactly the, the situation why this waiver process exists. Obviously, she can't get her dad's information, and that's a situation um, where the requirement would almost certainly be waived. Um, there are other situations where, you know, when I worked in an aid office, I would get letters all the time. That, uh, you know, the basic, uh, basically what the letter said is my dad's a jerk and he won't give me his financial info. That's a situation where it may not, the requirement may not be waived. And you may not get financial aid from that school unless you can um, convince dad to provide his info. So you really, when you're writing that letter requesting that the requirement be waived, what you really want to convey is it is really impossible for me to access my dad's information. I don't know where he is. I haven't seen him in years. You know, I, my mom has never received child support. You know, kind of you want to provide kind of facts, figures, dates um, to really back up your case. Um, do, you don't want to just convey, my dad doesn't want to give his info. Well, you, guess what? Nobody wants to give their info, <laughs> but you have to, to apply for financial aid. So you really want to convey it's really impossible. You don't know where dad is. You can't access his information. Um, some colleges will require third-party documentation. That's why that college called you. They might want a letter from like a guidance counselor, some sort of impartial third-party um, verifying the situation with dads. They sometimes come from lawyers, sometimes from you know, clergy people, somebody 
kind of impartial but who's familiar with the family situation just to back up that case. And if you can convince the college you really can't get at your non-custodial parent's information, they'll waive that requirement. Okay. All right. Great. So, Shannon, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time here. And thanks to the rest of my guests today. Um, Before I move on to next week's show, I wanted to tell you about College Coaches Contest. If you go to our Facebook page and you look for our Back to School Contest contest post there you can post a question for us about applying to or about how to pay for college and that will enter you in a contest that would allow you to have your question answered on this podcast and would also make you eligible for some prizes including for example an amazon gift certificate so i think that's a good thing to know about so again go to the college coach facebook page Um, But now I also want to tell you about our show next week. It'll be hosted by my colleague, Ian Fisher. Um, We'll be featuring another Schools In segment, and we'll also be discussing the Cambridge program, which is another international system of education that can also be found here in the United States. And don't forget to tune into our show on September 29th to hear about the FAFSA, um, also known as the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and again on October 6th for information on how to fill out the common application. Also, So remember that blog posts will be available regarding both those topics. The post regarding the FAFSA will be available online as early as September 6th at blog.getintocollege.com. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find our shows featuring the Schools Out segments, which began on June 30th. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here at every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out, and thanks again for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.